Heavenly Father. God, you are in heaven, we're on earth. And with my brothers and sisters, we come before you, those still in the flesh and broken in many ways. Because of what Christ has done, you have declared us righteous. His righteousness has been imputed to us. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So God, yes, you have saved us. You have given us an identity that will last forever. And even though we still fell in sin, you will be, those will be forgiven. You have called us now here today while we are still alive on earth to be conformed to the image of your son and share that same hope and light with those lost in darkness. God, too often this mission, this purpose gets cloudy. Be patient with us. Help us this morning to see new things through your word. We pray this all in the great, wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, kids, you are dismissed. And as some of the kids are going, they're getting ready to their class, we can take out our Bibles and turn to the book of Titus, which is where we're going to be in the New Testament. First and second Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Last week, we started a brand new series, a series called Calibrated. And we are going to continue today in the book of Titus in chapter one, and we're going to be in verse five, but we're going to talk about a few things before we get there specifically. Calibrated, a church that works. Before I say anything else, I want us to turn our attention to the screen. I want, you, I want to introduce you to someone who's got a, a few things to say to us. Hey, Summit Church, this is Greg Swaney, and greetings from South Carolina. I understand your pastors are doing a series on calibration, so I wanted to share a little something from my world. Um, I work in industrial packaging and uh, project development, project enhancement, uh, heavy in the technical field. One of the tools that's very important to me is, is a voltmeter, and it helps me determine if there's electricity left in a circuit or a machine. And, you know, when we switch it on and we want to put these leads, and then we see there's 123 volts there. Well, I've been hit or shocked three times in the last, uh, over the last 30 years. The strongest shock I received was about five years ago in Asheville, North Carolina. And, of course, I lived to tell the tale, but aside from my hands being a little uh, stiff and sore, and... Uh, there was this strange craving for pickles with peanut butter on them. I digress. So this instrument has to be properly calibrated. And when it's properly calibrated, when it's properly uh, interpreting the data, when it's properly uh, sensing, or you might even say properly discerning, uh, then it can uh, not only be a useful tool in troubleshooting and help me determine the root causes of problems that can save my life. So calibration is a, an interesting subject, and I know your pastors are going to do a fantastic job. God bless. That handsome older gentleman, if you didn't catch, uh, is my dad, Greg Swaney, and took that video down in South Carolina. Yeah, so we can clap. Thank you, Dad. Dad, I know if you're watching, seeing this video, thank you very much. I grew up my whole life hearing the stories of my dad working on machinery and hearing the word calibration all the time. Calibration, calibrated. Did you catch what he said? This 
instrument working properly could even save my life. And you can imagine how important that would be when you're dealing with electricity, which could easily kill you, relying on an instrument to tell you whether or not it's dead or alive. And if the instrument tells you something wrong and then you proceed, it could uh, result in a, a great shock and leave you tasting pickles and peanut butter, as he said. So calibration, very important. Now, Hey, just a, just a word. Maybe you work in a field that involves calibration. That word's resonating with you. Send us a video like this. Let us see what you're working on and give us the, the life lesson, the, the, the lesson in front of you of why calibration is so important. You may find it up on the screen as the months go on and we emphasize being a calibrated church. The subtitle says this, a church that works. So here's something I want us to repeat every week if we can devote ourselves to saying this. A calibrated church is a church that works. Now here it is. Not for salvation, but because of salvation. A calibrated church is a church that works not for salvation, but what? Because of salvation. We gave you last week, even in the book of Titus, a, a memory verse, something that we want you to focus on, the theme verse, the theme passage of Titus, chapter two, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem him, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, good works comes into play after God has already saved you. So we do not want this to become confusing. We want this to be thought-provoking, but we want to realize that good works is not a bad word in the Bible. It is a bad word if good works are for salvation, but God saves us for a purpose. And the one thing he wants from his people are a people who are zealous for good works. Now, the question, what are these good works? We're, begin, we're beginning to see them in the passage we're going to be in today. Last week, we used Paul the Apostle as an example of the calibrated apostle. And we made this statement that a calibrated church, and you're going to see it on the screen, a calibrated church starts with calibrated leadership. Paul the Apostle being the first, the disciples being the examples who carried the message in their evangelism to different places in the world and churches were planted and began to grow. And we see the life of Paul and the rest of the apostles training the churches. The New Testament being written over several years to the point where the completed word of God was given to the churches. And now we have, as the scripture says, Peter says, we have been given everything that pertains to life and godliness. Everything that we need to know about a life devoted to God and a life lived on earth can be found right here which is why our foundation is the word of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself was the manifestation of the full word of God in human form. And now we have an example, Jesus, to look to that he's predestined us to be conformed to. Paul the apostle being commissioned by Jesus. Now Paul 
training Titus and other pastors, now telling them to go to churches and train and calibrate men who are leaders who will lead the church and be that example as well to the people. And then we pass that on as well to our children, to our friends, to anyone we can have influence with. We're trying to pass this good work down. Paul himself being a calibrated leader is now going to tell Titus who he believed was a calibrated leader to plant and appoint calibrated leaders within the churches there in Crete. Titus is on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. It's a 150 mile long island that's known, that's known for its wild, debaucherous living, a place known for its lying and its gambling and its gluttony. This is where the churches were. And Paul came and he found that, wow, there's some work that needs to be done here. So, Verse five, I want to read it real quick. Paul says to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, right? Showed up on the island, noticed that the churches had some work that needed to be done. Paul began that work. He left, but he left Titus there, writes to Titus to remind him of the important things that he should be doing to put what remained into order, to calibrate. And look what he says here to put what remained into order, comma, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. See that word there, elder? You're gonna see something on uh, the screen here. Elder in scripture, when you see that used, equals overseer, equals bishop, equals pastor. We don't use the term elder like we use the term pastor. It's not, it doesn't roll off our lips. Like, hey, pastor, pastor, pastor. We know what a pastor is. We think in terms of pastor. When we're talking about a pastor, we're talking about an elder. When we talk about a bishop, we're talking about an elder. When we talk about an overseer, we're talking about an elder. God has appointed two offices in the church, elder and deacon. And when we say the word pastor, we mean elder. When we say the word elder, we mean pastor. A little bit of clarification here. And Paul is saying, these churches are left without pastors without leaders, without elders. They need to have elders appointed over them because calibration starts with calibrated leadership. And Titus, by yourself, because of all the churches, you can't do it alone. There needs to be other men who will be raised up and be this example. Notice there he says elders, plural, and every time. The ideal, the, the ideal point for every church is that every church would have a plurality of these men that would be overseeing and guiding the church. Now, we're gonna start going into a list of qualifications, right? So he's gonna talk about these leaders and he's gonna talk about what they must have, what they must not have that's true about them and what they must be able to do but before we get into the qualifications, I want to show you, uh, uh, I, want to, I want to give you a little sentence here. Two extremes to avoid. You'll see it on the screen as, screen as well. Two extremes to avoid when understanding pastoral qualifications. And then there you're going to see this little picture here. You have suggestions on one end of the spectrum. So what Paul is going to tell us about calibrated leadership, godly men that are going to lead the church, one extreme is suggestions. It's not what these are. The other extreme is perfections. The man of God must be absolutely perfect. 
It's not what that is. We're talking about qualifications that would fit right here in the middle, not a suggestion, but also realistically understanding that the men that are leading us are still in the flesh. They're still struggling with the flesh. They're still being worked on themselves, but the qualifications are non-negotiable character qualities that these men must have if they're gonna be effective leaders and encouraging the church that the work that God has done in my life is real because you can see the change in my life. An important observation I wanna point out as well, you're gonna see this on the screen as well. An important observation about calibrated pastors or elders from Titus one through five that's very interesting is you're gonna see is that character is greater than gifting. Character is greater than gifting. And I'll tell you what, we live in a world where we are Our temptation is to be okay with character lacking as long as we have a charismatic, gifted person who's representing us in front of us that will keep us entertained, say what we want him to say, do what we want him to do, and be the man that we believe in our heart, in our mind that he should be to keep us excited. This is the temptation. You see it all the way back even in the Old Testament when the time of the judges are ended and God is ready to be the king of the people, but the people are screaming and demanding that God give them a man that would rule over them, a man that would be like all the other nations, right? right? We see what everybody else has and we want it. We want to be like them and they're filled with envy and covetousness. Samuel, the judge who's heartbroken by this, appeals to God and God says, they have not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. Therefore, give them what they want. And in the example of Saul, we see the result of a lack of character. But then God appoints the leader that he wanted David, who was the anointed king, the one who was God's choice, the one who would represent Jesus Christ. And what do you see in the example of David? Even a man who still wasn't Jesus and consequences came as a result of the lack of character in his life, the lack of holiness, the lack of uprightness, the lack of goodness. Character is more important than gifting. I did not say that character is the only thing because gifting is still a part of it. Ability and competency is still a part of these calibrated leaders. So, you guys ready to put the microscope on me and the rest of your elders and learn what it is that we should be knowing that as I go through these, you're thinking about me, you're thinking about your elders as you should because this is accountability. Your pastors are accountable to the word of God. We're accountable to each other in our plurality as we gather together and the other pastors, other elders, we're all looking at each other constantly in in gracious critique, pulling each other up and encouraging each other to live towards the example that we're commanded that we should be living towards and embodying and being examples of. Accountable to one another and then accountable to you as well. So, first things first, my pastor should be an example of what a calibrated reputation looks like. My pastors, elders, should be an example of what calibrated reputation looks like. Paul says this, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And he says this in verse six, if anyone is above reproach. But before I get into that word, I want you to pay attention to, the, to where Titus is at in this letter. Paul is giving him the duty, you're going into each town and you have to look for 
amongst the people, you have to look for a man, very specific, a man. God's eternal providential sovereignty for pastors is that it be a man. And you look for a man who is what? It says here, above reproach. You know what that word means? That word could be translated blameless. Uh, Is anybody here in the perfect sense blameless? No, but this has a very specific meaning with it. Think about it like this. It has the meaning of if someone throws something at them and says something about their reputation or about their character, they try to throw it at them, you're left thinking, that doesn't sound like them at all. That doesn't sound like them because their reputation before you has been above reproach. And so when an accusation comes, and it will come because accusations even came to Jesus Accusations are not what disqualifies. Accusations will come, but because they've been above reproach, you know that their reputation does not line up with what they've been said about them. Now, someone who's not above reproach, when the accusation comes, like everyone around is like, yeah, that, that really does sound like him. The elder must be above reproach and reputation. As we continue down this list, I want you to think now in terms of chapter two, what Paul says concerning good works. He says this in verse seven, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So are we talking about men who have these specific qualifications just because the, the title and the position they're in require such a high standard, yet it does not apply to us? No, God is wanting you to have before you men who will lead you, who will be the model of good works because everything that you're hearing that God says I'm requiring of these men is what I require of all my children. And you need the tangible example before you to look to. So is it just the pastor that should be above reproach? No, it's all of us as God's children. But you need the example to see the reality, as Paul said, concerning the word of truth that accords with godliness. Like when the word is taught, the truth is taught, Paul said this accords with godliness. That means when someone understands God's word and they eat, sleep, and breathe it, it changes their life. It's the proof of it. So when you see your men in front of you who are teaching you, who are guiding you, who are overseeing the church, they have these qualities as an example that their life is according with godliness, that, wow, they must have surrendered themselves to the truth, and the truth is powerful in their life. If they can do it, I can do it. If they can be a model of good works, I can be a model of good works. If God can help them, God can help me because we are just like you. Not special. God's not partial to us. Not better than, not some type of super man of God that's been given some type of extra crazy amount of strength. Broken men who God are calling to lead the church to prove to everyone that God's word can change lives and be hopeful, but also to be effective. Because if the man of God, if the pastor before you is hypocritical and doing the same things he's saying don't do, it renders his teaching ineffective. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 9? Let me read it to you. Paul said this, 
I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He's talking, I actually wanna, I actually wanna see people saved. And that's in 1 Corinthians 9, which is actually where he says, I become all things to all mean, men that I might by all means save some. Realizing that my life being under control and being conformed to the image of Christ is what will help save people. And if my life does not match up with my preaching, it renders me ineffective, disqualified. Okay, do we see the greater purpose here more than just rules? We see there's some purpose behind it. You guys tracking with me? My pastor should be an example of what calibrated reputation looks like. He has a life that when I think about him, wow, he meets these. And if the accusation were to be thrown, though accused, left feeling undeserving of the accusation. Okay, secondly, this. My pastor should be an example of what a calibrated home looks like. Verse six, he says this. If anyone is above reproach, and he says this, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to a charge of debauchery or insubordination. Home life is tough, isn't it? You know what happens? We say like who we really are is what happens at home. In the book of, uh, when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, hey, he needs to be able to rule his own house well. Children submissive. Because if he cannot rule well at his home, how is he gonna rule well over the home or the church or the family of God? A reputation, an example of what calibrated home life looks like. He says this first, husband of one wife, basically this, a one woman man, a man whose heart is devoted to one woman and a man whose reality and even reputation is devoted to that one woman. Hey, Titus, if you're looking for men, find someone that you see is actually faithful or it goes on beyond that, sexually pure. They're not, they're not known for having a wondering eye and they're constantly uh, the type of person to be represented as a, as a womanizer. They're faithful and they're committed to one woman if they're married. If they're not married, the expectation would be that they're still sexually pure and do not have a reputation of being someone who's constantly being led by the lust of their flesh. Then he says this, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. We don't have too much time to get into the weeds of this, so let me just say this. The scripture here says children are believers. That could the question then is, do, does the pastor's children have to be saved in order for him to be qualified to be a leader? If you go to the qualifications that he tells Timothy, he doesn't mention this. He tells Timothy, look for men whose home life, they rule well and their children are submissive. The word here, pistos, can be translated like the new King James says, faithful. That seems to be a, a better interpretation to think is because He's able to keep his household under control and children can be a liability to the pastor if their children are crazy and wild, which is the next few uh, descriptions he gives. Debaucherous, insubordination. Debauchery, wild, crazy. Prodigal, right? They're unable to be controlled. They are, they're literally given over to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and they're going off doing all types of crazy things and you cannot control them. And insubordination, akin to that, they're rebellious, openly rebellious children where all of the church knows it and the pastor's unable to keep his own children under control is a problem. 
But it's not just a problem for just the pastors. It's a problem for every home that has a husband and a father that would call themselves a Christian. You need an example of how to rule your own house well. My pastor should be an example of what calibrated reputation looks like, what a calibrated home looks like. And then thirdly this, my pastor should be an example of what calibrated character looks like. It says this in verse seven, for an overseer of God's, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. There he reemphasizes what he started. This is very true. All of these things, he must be above reproach. He must, see where it's not a suggestion, not negotiable. He must not be arrogant, arrogant or quick tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. My pastor should be an example of what calibrated character looks like. And in this character, you have some negatives, some things he should not be, and in turn, instead, some things that he should be, keeping in mind that as we read through this, you're thinking, I need to be shepherded and taught the type of character I should have being a child of God and learning from my leaders. So let's go through it really quick. Overseer, notice this, God's steward, This is not my church, this is God's church and God has entrusted it to your elders to oversee, to keep guard over your soul as scripture says. We're gonna give an account one day for how we keep guard over your soul. Very great sense of responsibility. He says this, he must not be arrogant. That word arrogant, we know what that means if we were to say it about someone, but let me go even deeper into it. The, the word being self-willed here, it's the words satisfy and the word self in the Greek that have been brought together. It's all about me. I'm living in such a way where life is about me and everything that I do is, is motivated by what I want. So there's this arrogance. I'm, I think that I need and I want You can't have a man over God's house doing that. Self-willed is a good word because they're not God-willed. It's not God, whatever you want my life to be true, whatever you want, have your way with me. I'll surrender whatever you want to, regardless if it matches up with what I might want. Does that sound like something that as, as people in general, it's okay for us to be? We can't be this way. Not arrogant, not self-willed or quick tempered, quick to become angry. And it's more than just these outbursts, right? If one of your elders has a moment of weakness and we have an angry moment and it's an outburst, it doesn't immediately disqualify him. What's important is when that person has a a weak moment and maybe they need to ask for forgiveness and they're angry or they become quick-tempered and you think that's not like him. Remember, oh, he's above reproach because that's not like his character. He had a weak moment. But it's someone who you know has this like underbelly of resentment and bitterness in their heart. They go around, it's like always just there. They're never letting go to it. And everything that happens to them is this, one, this extra stuff that's just brought into that. And they're ready and quick to become angry. And they have a reputation of that. And you know them, they could even, yeah, that's an angry person. That person's got angry. That's a resentful, bitter person. The 
The pastor cannot be that because we struggle with that all the time and we need men who show us the hope that I can be cured and healed of that type of quick-tempered anger that resides in me that my family and my friends are constantly experiencing, praying all the time that God would change about me. You need an example of someone who's not that way. Not, says this, he must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard. That seems kind of obvious, right? Not a drunkard. Wouldn't describe your pastor as, yeah, yeah, he's drunk all the time. He's a drunkard. It goes a little deeper, though, than just drunkenness. The word here is sits long besides beside wine. Is this person characterized as someone who's like, I have to have it. Maybe they don't ever get drunk, but they always have to have it. It's with them all the time. It's routine. It's always stocked up. It's always there. And I couldn't let it go if God asked me to, because I have to have it. Given to it is a translation you might have given to it. Why is it important that you have a leader who's not given to wine or a drunkard because alcohol is overtaking people's lives left and right and they need to see an example of someone who cannot be controlled by it and an example of someone who doesn't need it, doesn't turn to it to cope with it, doesn't turn to it to feel happy, but the spirit of God is their reliance and their satisfaction and alcohol isn't replacing God and hasn't become a vice in their life because so many of us have been overtaken by it. We need the example of God's work in someone's life so we can know that he can help us as well. We gotta move. Not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard or violent, that goes without saying. Someone who's not violent, who's not settling stuff literally with their fists and fighting all the time. It's literally the word violence. I mean, that, that seems obvious, right? But you gotta remember, he's on Crete and he's having to sift through the type of people and find men who will match up to this. I'm sure that as he went into the towns, he probably found men who were like, man, you got, yes, you three are the only ones who seem to match up with this. So you three are gonna be the elders, the representation of this. not violent, or greedy for gain. A pastor can't be greedy. He can't love money. This goes even deeper than just being greedy. It means I'm using the ministry for the gain, for I'm using the people and the ministry and everything for a means of me to get money because I'm greedy. There's a Bible word uh, translation that I love called filthy lucre. Maybe your scripture says that. It's this idea that he's ready even to do something that would be uh, twisted, and wrong and even illegal, ready to, if he was presented with the opportunity and think he could get away with it, right? Reputation of someone who's like, yeah, I want money. The pastor cannot be that way because money is the root of all evil and many people are beholden to that and they're, they've, the scripture says they've pierced themselves with many pangs as a result of a desire to get rich. And so that type of person really needs a leader in front of them who can show them like, yeah, I don't need money. Okay. These are the negatives. These are things that he cannot be. But his character should be one characterized as being hospitable, literally lovers of strangers. I love people and I don't show partiality and people I don't know, I welcome and love and I have a reputation of being hospitable either in the home or with people. Someone who is hospitable. How about this? Someone who is a lover 
of good. Maybe your translation says lover of good men. It's this idea of things that are intrinsically good this man loves. This is interesting because Isaiah prophesies of a time when people would call good evil and evil good. Do we not live in a day where people are rejoicing in what's evil and gnashing their teeth at what is good? Don't we live in that day? People need to see someone who will stay true and be, be a, a lover of good things. And you got you you someone who has a reputation of, yeah, they say they love God, but it seems like they're always making fun of and talking down to, filled with envy. They can't rejoice with those who rejoice. When good things happen, it's like they can't be happy. So twistedness. This one is gonna take some time to think about even in your own life. When it comes to the good things in life, are those the cringy things? Are those the things that make you roll your eyes? Are those the things that seem boring and lame to you? And it seems like everything that is attractive to you is that that would be rocking right in accord with the world. That might be a sign that you're not a lover of good, but you need men in your life who can be an example of that, who can lead you in that. So when they tell you to do that, you can be like, well, yeah, at least he does that. I'm filling the microscope right now. A lover of good self-controlled. This one has more to do with the word sober-minded, able to take control of his mind. His thoughts aren't going crazy. He's able to think rightly. He's in control of his inner self. Then look at the next word, upright, or the word just, or the word for righteous. He's, He's devoted to what's good. His outer life. He's not guilty of, of crimes and illegal legal activity, but his life is characterized as one who does the right thing. So you have like self-control. He's, his inner control, inner mastery is there. His uprightness, his, his righteousness before others and on the outside is good and devoted to what's right. And then he says this, holy, his life towards God is right, pure like God. Again, not perfect, but a life and a character characterized of being holy, devoted to God, to the things of God, a lover of God, lover of people, a lover of good, someone who does what's right and who loves God and who's like God and strives for holiness like God, doesn't make excuses for holiness. And then finally this, and disciplined, which could go along with self-control, but it has the idea of keeping his body Discipline. He's a master over himself, over his mind, over his thought life, over his actions, and over the urges and the cravings of his body. Why? Because we, as we're told in chapter three, what life was characterized like before Christ and what we still struggle with is this. For we ourselves, chapter three, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We desperately need something to come in and help us with this type of life because this is the experience of life. I feel it. It says, do it. I do it. And I don't have the ability not to. You need a man who is characterized as disciplined because you need an example of what it is to control your body. Like Paul said, I make my body obey me. I do not obey it. 
because our life is characterized by these passions that only wage war against the soul, Scripture says. So, my pastor should be an example of what calibrated character looks like. See how important this is to God? Now, we're almost done. Bear with me. He's going to start to change it a little bit, get into the ability of the man. First, my pastor should be an example of what calibrated priorities look like. Verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. My pastor should be an example of what calibrated priorities look like, primarily God's word and sound doctrine, sound teaching. And you have some, dis- some descriptions here that I want you to fill in that I'll have on the screen. Holding firm, or think feeding, protecting. You know, the pastor, the elder, the bishop, the overseer, however you want to say it, has to have a priority of being devoted to God's word and sound doctrine. Holding firm to it, it says, who's, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word. What that means is like, I ain't letting it go. I'm not like wrestling, like one day I wake up, I'm like, do I, am I sure God's real? Am I sure his word is real? He's holding firm, he's stood on it and he will die if it comes to that and he'll never let go of it. You need men like that. Why? Because your life is plagued with moments where you're like, I'm not sure. Because the greatest thing the enemy's trying to destroy in your life is your faith, is wanting you to give up on what you've been taught. I want you to give up on this because this has life. The enemy hates God and he hates you and he's trying to do everything he can in your thought life and what you see and what you experience and what you feel to make you give up on this because this is what will save your soul. And we live in a world where people are mocking this, blaspheming this, and even so-called Christians are laying it to the side like it's not important for their everyday life or for their devotion. You need pastors who will not placate and while the rest of the world is burning around them, you'll have men who will hold firmly to it, unapologetically hold on to it and not let go of it because they believe that this contains eternal life and the words to life. And they desperately want you to grow in it and to see and hear the gospel. Holding firm, feeding. Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. I'm leaving, but I'm leaving you. Feed my sheep, Peter, three times. Feed, feed, feed. What people do not have that they need is another voice that comes in, a voice of truth that will feed their souls the food that abounds to eternal life, as Jesus says. Whoever eats of my body, I have bread for you that when you eat it, you'll never hunger again. Why do you need men who do this? Because your life is characterized with constantly trying to eat things in your soul to satisfy you and please you, but it never comes to that point of satisfaction. You're always still hungry. What's the one thing that's going to satiate and satisfy the longing of your soul? It's the gospel. It's God's word. It's relationship with him. And you need men above you who will exemplify that and show you that the hope and the reality of the joy that comes with that is real. I see it in him. See it in him must be true. That's my reminder. That's my example that I'm looking to. And then protecting, which brings us to our next thing. Your pastors have been put over you by God because you need to be protected because there's wolves everywhere. My pastor should be an example, not only what calibrated priorities look like, but my pastor should be able to calibrate God's church. My pastor should be able to calibrate God's church. God is ultimately the one who calibrates it, but he gives the pastors very specific priorities and duties. 
Look what he says here, verse nine. He must hold firm in the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Exhortation, reproof. Exhortation, reproof. Exhortation, reproof. You know what's interesting when I look at the way God has created life and the way God wants life to function. Then I look out into the world and I see there are certain things that God has said are very important that the world's trying to diminish all the time. God created gender, so gender gets diminished and attacked and it becomes opposite in the world and it gets muddied, but God's very clear about it. God creates sexuality and then the world takes their own road. God creates exhortation and reproof and the world says you better let everyone live the way they want to live and don't you ever tell anyone to do anything or ever try to tell anyone they're wrong right and then we grow up with this and we begin to the moment we hear exhortation or we hear reproof we feel the same thing the world feels we say that's bad because it feels wrong God comes along and says, man, what you need is men over you who are examples, who will give themselves to the instructions that I've given them, which is to give you instruction, to exhort you, to look over your life and be that voice that maybe you don't want to hear that you hate in the moment when no one else is saying that will come to you and say, you're on the wrong path or, hey, let me encourage you this way or you need to do this or, hey, here's what I'm seeing in your life, but God's word says this. Would you let me like place it there where you're missing? That's what I'm here for and I want to be a good pastor and I want to look out for your soul and I see something that God wants to change. Here, it's not because I'm being legalistic. It's not because I'm being mean. It's because God's given me a task and I must fulfill it and God wants us to be able to give instruction. But to give this instruction, make it clear, make it obvious, not just in preaching, but in personal one-on-one ministry and counseling. It's the duty of the pastor. And, and there's many things, even in the church, that it, it feels like the pastor's always being pulled to be prioritized with something outside of this. Because you feel the expectations of what everyone thinks you should be doing, but you know exactly what God's called you to do. The pastor should be devoting himself to this. Very important. Giving instruction to the body. Exhorting. Doing it right now. But then finally this, able to give instruction in sound doctrine. If you've ever found yourself like puking at the word sound doctrine, you, you need to look inwards and say something has happened that's gotten you to a place, the enemy has gotten you to a place to make you cringe at something that's good and what you would rather have is what? All this heady type church where all they wanna do is talk about sound doctrine. What are we talking about? We're talking about sound thinking and teaching that people desperately need because your whole life is plagued with the world giving you its bad doctrine. You need men who will stick to the sound doctrine and feed you with it and then also rebuke those who contradict it. Paul has the idea within your own congregation will be people who will rise up who will have wrong teaching, bad doctrine. They'll come to wrong conclusions and they'll try to pull people away with it, upsetting whole houses as we'll see, and they will teach wrong things. And you must be able to, as a matter of fact, to protect the people, to get in there and reprove and rebuke. Do the thing that no one else wants to do and be like, like I'm sorry, you were wrong. And let me show you why you're wrong. And the whole goal is not to hurt that person, but to gain, you're trying to gain them. He says this later, rebuke them sharply. In chapter one, we're gonna see next week, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. The pastor should be able to do these things. And we know that the person who's qualified should be apt to teach. He's able to take God's word and teach it and give instruction. Church, I am tired, not just because that's a lot to say in just a short amount of time, 
but because it's also very sobering for me as I stand before you and I shine a magnifying glass on myself and the rest of your elders. So I'm gonna close with this. You've seen what God wants the pastors to be examples of. What you should be leaving with instead of a microscope on your pastors is a microscope on yourself saying, am I seeing these things as just something that that person up there has to live up to? Or am I realizing that this is part of the journey of good works that God wants me to be conformed to? Not for salvation, but because he's already given it and he's worthy and I wanna please him with my life and then I wanna help bring other people in. It's gonna involve letting God grow us in these areas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you are a God of great mercy and patience and kindness, but you are an example of one who is upright and just. You show no favoritism or partiality, and you want your pastors, your elders, those who you would put over churches to be qualified men who could shine hope into the congregation. So when they preach or when they teach, they're not disqualified because they're guilty of the same things they're saying not to do or to do. God, would you protect Summit Church from the evil one? One, you protect your leaders, the elders. We do face a unique temptation and frustration because the enemy knows that if he can attack the leader, he can discourage and hurt the body. God, that we would exemplify first the gospel and that we be characterized as a church where we're all growing together in these areas because we desperately want to be like Jesus and not like the world because we want people who are lost in darkness to understand the good grace and mercy that God's given us. They need to see it in us. So God, you'd use us that way and give us the strength to master our bodies where we struggle in Jesus' name. Amen.